Welcome to Emmanuel, and uh, welcome back if you've been away over Christmas. Hope you had a really good one. We are uh, going to spend a lot of this term uh, doing a series of Sunday messages under the heading, We Are Emmanuel. And really it's a chance for us to, to kind of pause for a moment, back up and look again carefully at who we are as a church, what makes us tick, what, what's our DNA, uh, what are our foundational things that, that remain priority things, the most important things. So that's our focus uh, for many weeks to come. I guess having just started the new year, many of you will already be some way into some kind of plan. Uh, we all find them hard to keep to as the year plows on. One of the reasons that we struggle with New Year's resolutions is, is just that life's busy. We imagine that it would all be simple and plain, but, but life is never that plain. And by the time you get to February, March, April, a load of new things have happened that distract and confuse and compete for your attention and your focus. And so to be successful with any resolutions and goals, it seems to me, we have to keep them ever before us. We have to keep them in the place of number one priority. If they shift to number two or number three, we can, we can forget about them. And it's really like that in church. We need to remind ourselves deliberately and freshly, what are the main things? There's always going to be competition about what churches should be doing. Trust me, I, I know this as a, as a pastor of a church. I know there's always multiple voices and ideas and opportunities and suggestions and potential we could fulfill. But if we aren't clear about these things, these are the priority things, we'll end up actually getting lost in a kind of tangled web of possible ideas. And so it's in... It's in, in absolutely essential for us to stay focused. And, and we want to do that uh, through these messages. And today I want to actually look as best I can at the answer I might give in a sentence. If someone was to say to me, what is it that your church is meant to do? What is it that Emmanuel is here to do? What's your mission as a church? And uh, a slogan, a sentence that, that we as a team of leaders feel happy with for a few reasons, partly because it's kind of catchy and memorable, but also because it does so much to communicate what we're about, is as follows. Uh, Emmanuel is here to help people find their way back to God. To help people find their way back to God. That should be easily memorable. It's sticky enough to stay with us, to help people find their way back to God. And that's the thing that we always want to keep before us. We want to always be saying to ourselves, are we continually, deliberately as a church, prioritizing this goal that we're here to help people find their way back to God? If we stop doing that, we stop being Emmanuel. If we, if we find that really there are other things that are more important to us, then we should check why that's happened. And sometimes it might mean that we we say to ourselves, is this thing that we're doing or could do or being asked to do actually going to help people find their way back to God? And if it isn't, we should question it carefully because we want to make sure that this is our continual target. So that's what we've come with today. And I want to look at that by looking at one of the stories in the New Testament 
We're going to go to the book of Acts, which is the description of the, the church when it began after Jesus had sent his disciples into the world. And one of those disciples uh, was Paul. He actually became a disciple later because at, at first he was an opponent an enemy of the church. But we're going to catch up with him in Acts chapter 17, where he starts uh, preaching in the Greek city of Athens. And I'm going to read to you from verse 16 to 32. It goes like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So, Jesus talked in John chapter 15 about his relationship to his disciples. If you're a Christian, you fit into this category of being a, a what he calls a branch, a branch in the vine. He talks about himself in, 
in botanical terms. He's like a, a tree or, or a, a plant with branches that, that shoot out, but from one vine. They're part of the vine. They're connected. If you are a branch in a tree, you, you really are part of the tree. You're, you're not independent. What goes for the tree goes for you because you've been brought into that level of union. Jesus said, it's like that. It's really like that between me and my disciples, my followers, my, my brothers and sisters. We're joined in that, in that profounder level, at that primal level. We share the same stuff. We're bonded together. We're one together. I mean, this is one of the richest and most wonderful teachings of the Bible and deserves hours, weeks, months of our time. But let me apply it to one specific thing. When it comes to reaching out to the world that doesn't know Jesus, some of us will tend to think, well, that's not really me. I know some people who are good at that, and I'm not good at that. And so that's not me. That's, that's the province of some Christians, not this Christian. And if you feel like that, I know how you feel. I often feel like that. I often feel how poor I am at, at sharing my faith with people who aren't Christians. I often feel weak at it. I feel it's beyond me. I feel my, my frailty and my feebleness. But I'm here to tell you that the ultimate truth about you, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you, deep down, at your deepest level, you love telling people about him. You do. You might say, oh, no, I don't. I'm telling you, you do. Why? Because the life of God's son is in you. you. You're joined with him. You're united with him. And what's he like? He burns with love for people who don't know him. That's what he's like. You read the stories of Jesus, you'll see that everywhere, every page. You'll see the description of what makes him tick it, it, it proves it again and again. He, is, he yearns for the people who are far from him. And he will, he will travel great distances. He will go through great suffering. He'll go through inconvenience. He'll go through misunderstanding and rejection from his own people in order to reach out to people who are different than him, who are far away from him, people for whom he feels terrible compassion. He loves the world into which his father has sent him. He's being true to his very own father, who, who, about whom he said, God so loved the world that he sent his own son. The most famous verse in the Bible, perhaps, should be. And, and if that's true about the father, it's true about the son. But here's the thing, if it's true about the son, it's also true about you. It's what you've become. You've become someone who, who wants to help people find their way back to God. It's one of the reasons you actually, you do get excited when people become Christians. People around you, maybe in your family or friendship group, your workplace, whatever environment you find yourself. News about people coming to faith for you is, is good news. New birth is good news. You delight in it. You might not feel very good at initiating it, but nevertheless, it's, it's something you rejoice in and it's something you want to see happen because God's made you that way. We share in his mission. Now, what we're looking at in this story is an example of some of that going on in this man, Paul. Paul is one of those disciples, a later disciple, like I said, who, 
who is filled with this same longing and passion. And so he travels from city to city. He goes to reach out, just as we as a church have started here in Brighton and we're planting in Berlin and Amsterdam and Ottawa and Krakow and God's given cities to our heart to, to start new churches in. Not that they should ever be a distraction from Brighton, which is where we are called first as a church right now, the focus where we are as a people, as a church. But, but this passion to, to reach cities with the love of Jesus Christ was in Paul. And I want us to see how it worked out in his mission here in this particular city of Athens. It says that he goes to the Areopagus, which is, that's a, uh, means Mars Hill. The god Ares, the the, uh, the Greek god, same as Mars in the, in the Roman pronunciation. It's the it's the the god of war. They had a special altar or temple given to him on a certain hill, and that was the place where they used to gather for discussion. Some of the senior leaders in the city would get together and discuss new ideas. And so Paul shows up to 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 bring Jesus to them, tell them about Jesus. That's what's going on in this story here. It's a real place. You can go there today. I went there just this year. I've been there twice, and uh, there's a photo actually of me just to prove that I have been there. Behind it, you can see the Acropolis where the Parthenon is, and uh, uh, these are a couple of friends of mine, Simon Holly in the middle and Mike Betts on the other side. Just between Simon and Mike, you can see another Simon, Simon Brading. And as you can see, the three of us have deliberately excluded him. There's a sense in which we're kind of huddling up, and you see there's a certain smugness in all of our faces, and a certain look of rejection in Simon Brading's face, which is thoroughly intended. We wanted to ostracize and exclude him, to teach him a lesson, and, and to, uh, to discuss his shortcomings and pray for his soul. Uh, so that's the sort of thing that happens. If I ever take people on a trip, I deliberately make them feel uncomfortable. You can expect that. But no, no, it's not true. It is an amazing place. You should go there. And it's, it's extraordinary to read the Bible and think, well, these real things happen in real places. You need to know that. All right? This is a place where Paul actually went. And he preached, he proclaimed, he talked about this extraordinary message of Jesus Christ. But he, he had some particular things to say to this city, things that he especially noticed about them. You, you would have seen in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Idols. And then further down, in verse 22, when he starts to preach to them, he talks about them uh, being very religious. Now, He's provoked, not because Athens is the only place he's ever found where they're into idols. The reality is everywhere Paul went, everywhere he would have found idols. Everywhere he went, he would have found people who are religious. Everywhere on planet Earth you go, there is idolatry. And it provoked Paul in the same way that it provokes his saviour. Paul's just been a branch of the vine. Jesus is provoked by idolatry. His father is provoked by idolatry. Why? Because you and I, we were not made to bow down before idols. We were made to know the living God, to have a, a relationship of life and light and love with our Father. This is the one for whom we were made in his image uniquely amongst all creation, especially made for relationship with him, that would be utterly fulfilling and satisfying and joyful and all the rest 
pleasing, happy. But we've actually rejected that because we've desired other gods instead or we've really tried to replace God instead. The Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry. It leads to nothing good. It leads to misery in our own lives and it provokes God's anger because it's so the opposite of what he intended for creation. It's destroyed our relationship with him, caused us all kinds of pain and trouble. And so we're left, it seems, as a, as a whole race, as humanity, right across every culture, every language, every people, every nation, every color, every tribe, whatever. We're in this same situation of on a deep, 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 deep level, knowing that we kind of need God. We need some kind of God. We, there are atheists for sure, but they've generally been a minority through history. And even atheists will generally have some kind of abiding great principle, great thing that they want. Whether it's, they might not call it God, they might not think of it as a spiritual thing, but something we kind of long for primarily, I think, an object of our worship. It's part of our makeup. We, we, want to be, we want the world to make sense and have meaning and have purpose and destiny. We, we can't not have that, it would seem. And yet the God of the Bible, the real God, as far as the Bible is concerned, is the one we do not want. We tend to reject him. So you see these people, this city, where they worship all kinds of stuff. I mean, just everything. That's how it is in ancient cities often. It's still the same today. We might not bow down to stone and gold and silver and statues, but we still bow down to money. We still bow down to sexual gratification. We still bow down to personal comfort. We still bow down to our career. We still bow down to certain relationships. We, we bow down to certain people who have power in our lives. We treat them as if they're God. And it robs us of everything. And, and, and it's, it's inherent. We, we want this. But when Jesus comes along, when the true God comes along, Jesus himself says so. He says, the light has come into the world, but the world rejects the light because its deeds are evil. The world likes the darkness and not the light. Jesus himself said that. Describing the human condition, he said, Problem is, really, in the end, people don't really want the light. They want the dark. They prefer it. The light can come along and dance around in front of you. But ultimately, left to ourselves as a race, we will really always choose the darkness instead. That will always be our preference because in our heart, we don't really want God. We want some kind of God. We just don't want the real one. There was a brilliant French philosopher in the 17th century called Blaise Pascal, and he, he, he put it in a very pithy question. If man is not made for God, why is he only happy in God? If man is made for God, why is he so opposed to God? This is Pascal kind of trying to get to grips with the problem, with the universe, with the real issue, human-wise. This is our problem, our biggest problem. You might think your biggest problem is your boss, your course, your boyfriend, your, your, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your budget. I tell you, those are not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is your idolatry. That's your problem. That is your biggest problem always. Your deep suspicion that there's someone better than Jesus. And your confidence that if you keep... You're right. If you're if you drawn back to Jesus, you'll be making a mistake. You'll be making a mistake. That 
that instinct in you to worship other gods instead is your biggest problem, my friend. It's their problem in Athens, and Paul brings it to their attention, and, and he gets rejected for it. They don't want to hear it. The world loves the darkness. And so they say, who is this babbler? What is this babbler trying to say? Then they bring him to, to the, the Mars Hill. He gets up and speaks. As soon as he talks about the resurrection, they start to mock him. He says that some listened, and we'll talk about that before we finish. But generally, there's this reaction because, well, I guess we're a bit nervous about a God who's like that. A God who's the real God, who has a face, who is a person, who, who in fact is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, maybe we don't want a God that we can't keep in a box. Paul draws, draws attention to this. He says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And over in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image, listen to this, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We are really happy with gods that we can make. Yeah? That we can form and manipulate. We can get to do what we want. That's what's behind the unknown God altar, by the way. Isn't that a bit weird? They've got all these different gods to this, 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 and this. You know, the god of thunder, god of, of, of the sky, god of this, god of this, god of the sea. The Greeks had all kinds of multiple different deities for different occasions, basically. And I guess they were scared they'd left one off. You know, we've got the god of pigs, and god of jam, god of pastry. What we haven't got is the, well, I don't know. What, what are we missing? What, we don't know what we're missing, but we're bound to be missing something. There's always someone you forget to invite to the party, and they're always really offended. So we better make sure we do it, and kind of a, a general send-to-all invitation. An unknown God. Yeah, that'll fix it. That was the, probably the thinking behind this, because they want to keep the gods sweet, basically, keep them happy. Notice, they don't really want to know the gods. <laughs> they don't want a relationship with them. They just want to keep them in, so life will go well. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is not like that. You can't really do that with him, not for long, not for long. He starts doing kind things in your life. He starts answering your prayers and changing your circumstances, and it's amazing and wonderful. But he'll always gradually be coming more and more into your life and saying, I want you to know that I'm better than all the things I give you. All the answers to prayer, all the miracles, all the healings, all the blessings, I'm still better. And if none of them were there, I would still be worth it. That's what he's like. Maybe we don't really feel comfortable about that. God will want to help us get to that point, and that's why he sends people like Paul into our lives to wake us up, shake us up, teach us to see what's real, what's important, what kind of God we need. This is, this is, this is huge. And let's make it really clear from another place in the New Testament where Paul himself speaks, this is impossible. It's a miracle when it does happen. Because no one seeks God, he says that again and again in the, like Romans chapter 3 and places like that. But let me read you a place that makes it abundantly clear. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And he's talking here to people who have become Christians. All right, Church in Ephesus, these are believers in Jesus Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's a miracle. No one would choose this God. We're dead. We can't even choose him. Our will is dead, broken beyond repair. God alone can rescue us. Lift us up, raise us up from our spiritual death, far worse than any sleep. I sometimes have used the illustration of like a rom-com. I know that some of you young men love rom-coms, um, so I use that illustration deliberately. No, I don't. It's, I, sorry. You hate rom-coms. I know that. Let's be honest. Uh, let's be real. We, we, we know, know the story, the way that these generally tend to work. Nearly always the same, basically the same formula. You know, guy meets girl, guy is unpleasant and unattractive. Girl sees him as such and hates him for the first half hour, 45 minutes, maybe hour of the movie, depending on how long and awful it is. <laughs> and then it kind of gets to the point where gradually you know, the music changes, there's something cute happens, you realize that, he, oh, he's got a kid, or oh, he's, you know, he's into chess, or oh, he's got a soft side, or you know, he likes classical music, or oh, he's not just a beast. And, and it's kind of like, it turns, and then her heart starts to soften, and he's actually a lovely man. And then in the end, it you know, all finishes off with a wedding and hopefully something horrible happening. But this, this, is a, this is a formula that plays out in multiple stories, right? And, and I suppose it's, it's tempting and perhaps valid to say that that's what becoming a Christian is like. You used to think God was the most appalling person. You used to think, Jesus, oh, I just couldn't be near the Christians, the Bible. Everything about this puts me off. Never, ever imagine that I'll become a Christian. I would never be seen dead. That's just not me. I can't bear the thought of it. But gradually things happen. You start to change and you see stuff you never saw and you begin to, oh my word, I can't believe this is happening to me. I'm falling for him. I'm starting to love this. I'm starting to feel that I could follow him. I mean, it's an amazing thing when it happens. And that's quite a helpful illustration. But here's the problem with that illustration. It's not wrong. It's just don't only go with that illustration. Because when you read Ephesians 2, you realize it's, if it is a rom-com, it's a really gross one. It's like where, where the guy walks through a graveyard and a dead woman goes, mmm, and is really attracted. And it's like the story of how a corpse came back to life and fell in love with someone. That's not a good rom-com. That's more like a horror film, right? That's a zombie movie. That's what, it's, that's what Paul's saying here. It's that, it's that much of a miracle. It's that much of a miracle. When Paul goes into Athens and says, men of Athens, I want to tell you about the God who raised his son from the dead. He knows that this is going to be crazy for them. But he still says it. Why? Because he knows that God calls people. God raises people from the dead. That's what being a Christian is about. Jesus rose from the dead. That means dead human, dead, spiritually dead people can be raised. 
That can happen in this room. That could be happening right now for all I know. I hope it is. I hope there's someone here who for the first time ever, beyond all their expectations and imaginings, is starting to think, maybe I was wrong about Jesus. Maybe I need him. Wouldn't that be amazing? That happens. It only happens because of him. It only happens because the same person that once walked into a graveyard and shouted, Lazarus, come out, can say it spiritually to anyone else. And he has done for thousands of years. Call people out of their spiritual tomb. That's what, that's what helping people find their way back to God is kind of like. Which is a little bit tricky. Well, I'm not really good at raising the dead. You know, how, how, do I, how, do, how does that really relate to me? Well, here's the, the interesting thing. We don't get left to it ourselves. Now, I want to just talk before I finish about some, some practical things this leaves us with. If, if helping people find their way back to God involves a miracle, what does that suggest we at least start with? <laughs> it suggests that we begin with prayer. We begin with prayer. All right? And I want to talk about that for a sec before we move on. Please, if you think for one moment that you want to be involved in helping people find their way back to God, start here and, in fact, stay here. Beginners, you mean to carry on. Never let us as Emmanuel, as a church, never, ever let us miss this primary calling. Friends, we do our best work in prayer. We do. For everything else we do, our preaching, our, our, our serving the poor, our raising money, our planting new sites and services and churches, raising leaders, everything that we do, really it comes out of our praying because he's the miracle worker. He's the one with the real power. And so we must, must come back to that. We must remind ourselves, for this reason, every term here at Emmanuel, we start with a season of prayer. We give ourselves, and frankly, you might think, well, that's quite unusual. It's, compared to the real church in the developing world, it's pathetic. We've still got mostly a lot to learn from the real churches in the poorer countries where people really pray. But I'm eager that we keep learning. And so every year, every term it's a week, every year at the start of this term it's two weeks, and it's two weeks of prayer and fasting. I plead with you, prioritise this if you see this as something for other people in this church, how can I say this nicely? You're arrogant. That's the nice way of saying it. You're arrogant. You're saying, they need Jesus, those sweet people that go to prayer meetings. They're the ones that need Jesus. Ha! Poor them. Of course, I don't. Foolish person. You need him so desperately. You need to abide in the vine. You need to deliberately seek him out. Let his words abide in you. Seek the Lord. It's who you are now anyway. And you aren't arrogant ultimately. If you're a child of God, you've been taught surely to humble yourself, to be meek, to be poor in spirit and to say, Jesus, I need you. I can do nothing without you. And so when they say, let's gather for a prayer meeting, I say, where and when? Because that's where I belong. I'm a branch in the tree. Of course I gather to pray. Of course, where else am I going to go? And tell you, I don't say this because we elders, we really need people to show up. We need to have the seats filled. We, we need more people in the premier. We don't need anything. 
All we need is Jesus. Thank you very much. You need to be there. That's the way around. You need to come. You need it for your year. How do you want 2018 to go spiritually? And by the way, if you don't care about how it goes spiritually, you definitely need to become a Christian. Really, at the end of the day, how does your year pan out spiritually is the biggest question. If you've been planning your dieting and your workouts but haven't been planning your prayer life, I don't know what you're doing. If you're not a Christian, I understand. But if you are a Christian, what are you doing? Start your year off by thinking, how can I begin with prayer? Do you hear me? I know I'm yelling at you right now, but you need this badly. At the start of the year, if we're not thinking, God, I seek you. That's what my life is about. That's what I'm on the planet for, to seek the Lord. Because if we don't, no one's going to find their way back to God. It's a miracle. It will only happen because Jesus comes into their life and calls them out of their grave. Who are we to arrogantly imagine we'll move an inch without prayer as a church? I hope I'm communicating this is huge. Begin with prayer. Secondly, and this is the only other thing that I'll camp out on before I finish. Listen. Now, we, we talk, some of, you, some of you will know I'm doing some of the bless acrostic right now, but I'm only going to do the first two. Touch the beginning of prayer. Listen. Why do I say this? Because what's going on, it's interesting. If you, if you just really quickly look at verse 27, Paul says to the, the Athenians, he talks about the fact that God has set things up that people should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? In the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. I guess if I'm, if I'm being consistent with what I said a few minutes ago about us being spiritually dead, how on earth are people going to feel? How can corpses feel? Well, this is the mystery. You know, we, we, we have a mysterious Bible. It teaches both things at the same time. The need for God to raise us from the dead, but also the activity of people. I guess in the process, God can be raising someone spiritually, but what's going on from their experiences is something that they can't even understand it happening, perhaps. When someone becomes a Christian, they're not necessarily able to articulate it theologically. They say, well, this is the part where I'm being raised to new life in Christ. They don't know that. It's any more than a child knows that it's being born. When a child is being born, they're not able to understand it biologically. They've got no idea. All they've got is the sensations. And becoming a Christian is like feeling your way, feeling your way back to God. And for us who help people find their way back to God, we need to get good at listening to what they're going through. Listening to the questions, listening to the problems, listening to the issues, so that we're able to help them to see what God might be doing in their life. I'll give you a few clues on this. If if you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ, you would have found this already in your life. We we know we, we get to the point where we are dissatisfied with life as we've experienced it. So let's just put these headings up on the screen here to help us, okay? There's this dissatisfaction that can happen in someone's life, and anyone can know this. You can suddenly feel dissatisfied. Not, you can have it grow on you. You can have it here today. Some of you, you've had this 
going in your, your life for months or years, uh, maybe just very recently, a growing, maybe just since Christmas, just, just dissatisfied. Maybe that's why you're here in church today. You just know that the world isn't giving you what you thought. Maybe you've, you've sought success, you've sought fulfillment, not found it. Maybe you have, you have found it and it was the worst thing that ever happened to you because you got the success you reached for and it bored you. You got everything you dreamed of and it actually wasn't enough because it was an idol. Dissatisfaction. Well, you can start with dissatisfaction, but what might be happening is the Holy Spirit can be creating something more important and that's spiritual hunger. Spiritual hunger. If we listen to our friends, colleagues, neighbours, relatives and see what's going on, we might notice when there's dissatisfaction. We can start coaxing it out, listening, helping them understand. That's not just dissatisfaction. You're hungry for God. Dissatisfaction can lead to something much more significant. Regret. How many of us, how many of you, how many of our friends, how many of the people you work with and share a desk with and share a car ride with or a train carriage with, if you really got under their skin, if you really listened to them while you're working, while you're talking, while you're having a drink, We'd be able to say, I wish I could start over again. I wish I hadn't done what I did then. I wish I didn't do this. I wish I did this. I wish I said this. I wish I never said that. I wish I didn't fail that person. I wish I chose that person and not this person. I wish I chose that course and not that course. Whatever, there's a whole load of ways in which people regret bits of their lives. And it can be superficial. Yeah, I, I, I should have gone to that uni and not that one. Or I, sh- you know, I should have started in this course. Or I should have opened an account with Barclays. That sounds superficial, but you know, it, you get good at listening. I wonder if people's regrets might show something more profound as you listen. You might hear more guilt coming out. People start to realize underneath, it's not just that they've made some bad decisions, that they are terribly guilty. They feel shame. They feel like, no, I'm fundamentally flawed as a person. It's not just that I'm not keeping up with my New Year's resolutions. I, I get life wrong. When you hear people talk like that, friends, do we know someone who can help? This is what we've come to give people, an answer to not just guilt feelings, but actual guilt. Guilt feelings are one thing. Psychiatrists try to deal with those. Only Jesus can deal with guilt. There's a big difference. Actual guilt. Jesus dealt with it on the cross. Jesus deals with guilt like no one else. If you feel guilty here today, you don't actually have to. You don't have to. You weren't born to, you weren't designed to. Jesus came to rescue you from that guilt through his own death on the cross. He suffered for your sins. But we don't know this about our friends unless we keep listening and hearing what they're going through. Just the normal stuff of life. They might not ever say, I've got a terribly guilty conscience. Show me some Bible verses. No, no, no. They might say, I just regret some stuff. I just, I should never have done that. And you keep listening, you keep talking. You might hear more that's underneath if the Holy Spirit's at work, raising them from the dead. Do you hear what I'm saying? We're going to help people find their way back to God. We're going to be listening. We're going to be hearing them as they feel their way through life. Disappointment. 
Disappointment, it sounds superficial. Ah, disappointed with you know, Brighton. They should have got a few more points so far this season. Definitely. That sounds really superficial, but maybe some people's lives are just a long queue of disappointments. And the stuff that they hoped for, the things they looked for. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick. What is, what is the answer for heart sickness? People learning to reject their idols, learning to see that there's, there's nothing to be seen that's good in, in those idols. They, they've, they've taken the place of God. That's why I'm disappointed. Of course I'm disappointed. I lifted things up that were made by God as if they were God. Welcome to disappointment. Bewilderment. What, what is the point of life? What's going on? Why am I suffering? Why, is my, why have I been fired? Why is my wife sick? Why are my kids struggling? Why, why is that person leading that country? Why, what is going on with the economy? Where is this nation going? Bewilderment. Total bewilderment. That's normal in our city right now. That's not necessarily a spiritual thing, but if God's raising someone from the dead, that can turn into looking for answers. Looking for answers. Where are the answers? In the God who's faithful, the God who's sovereign, the God who knows what he's doing, the God who can be trusted. God who's never freaked out, never phased out. And finally, anxiety, worry, constant worry. What can that turn into? Our worries and our anxieties can turn into a genuine dependence on the faithful God. These are the things we can help people with, genuinely help people to find. But we will only help them find it as we're finding him ourselves. Let me finish with this. This is my last point, the third point, and I'll say this really quick. The best things we can do to help people find their way back to God, we begin with prayer, we listen to people, and we do all the rest of the blessed things, we eat with people, we serve them, we share our story. But listen, you, you yourself must be daily finding your way back to God. Yeah? Feeling your own way back to God. That long list of things. Are you feeling those things? Disappointment, regret, disillusionment, bewilderment, anxiety. Are those where you spend some of your time as a son or a daughter of God the Father through Jesus? If that's how you're living your life, my friend, you need to come back to God. You find your way back to God. Enjoy God. Enjoy his provision for you in Christ. And enjoy him to the point where you are a testimony to those around you.